Hey, it's Jack. Mark is off this week, so I'm filling in to host this episode. When you think of the biggest players in healthcare, some names probably come to mind. United Health Group, Kaiser Permanente, McKesson, or Pfizer, to name a few. While these stalwarts all maintain a top spot in their respective markets, as well as in the minds of patients, we've seen the rise of non-traditional disruptors in recent years. Even prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, retail companies and massive tech firms have been making deliberate, strategic moves to gain a foothold in the industry. Think of Amazon, Google, Apple, and the subject of today's pod, Walmart. The company's efforts to expand in healthcare have hardly gone unnoticed over the past few years, especially by entrenched titans like CVS Health and Walgreens. Where Walmart is headed in a post-pandemic world that wants better, faster, and more efficient care delivery has left plenty of stakeholders curious. That's why our guest today, Dr. John Wigneswaran, Walmart's chief medical officer, details the retail giant's lofty healthcare ambitions, his thoughts on where the industry needs disruption in order to improve patient outcomes, and the continual impact of consumerism on care delivery. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hey, Jack. Today, I'll review the FDA's new reorganization plan, what it calls the largest in its history, as the agency aims to address some of its regulatory problems unmasked during the infant formula crisis. I'll also give an update on Senator Bernie Sanders' ongoing battle with Big Pharma. And for this week's healthcare trend segment, we're going to be talking about the eternal memory getting an Oscar nomination, a biggest loser judge has an issue with GLP-1s, and we debate Reese Witherspoon's embrace of TikTok snow cream trend. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Dr. Wig, it's wonderful to have you on the show here. I wanted to start our conversation off. I, there are so many questions I have about Walmart and their healthcare plans, but how have the expansion plans been going? I know last year there was moving into different states and this kind of broader expansion effort at play. Can you give us an update on where that stands? Yeah, it's, it's going it's going great. And, you know, one of the tenants that we have at Walmart is, you know, as we build, we always think about the customer. And so there is a really focused approach towards when we're putting anything out there into the market, how it feels, how it looks. Um, and so been really, really pleased with uh, the centers that have been put up so far. And what are the plans next in terms of setting up those centers? And can you kind of talk about, I was having this conversation with the CEO of Hackensack Meridian last week that during COVID, there was this sense of like, is brick and mortar ever going to come back to healthcare? Isn't the world just going to go fully virtual and digital? And obviously you guys have done a lot on that front, but the expansion of these centers does speak to kind of retail's uh, influence and power in the world of healthcare. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a really great question. I think that's something that I think everybody's been grappling with, particularly in healthcare as, you know, with the pandemic, as you mentioned, virtual care and ease and convenience. But, you know, what we've seen is um, there is a desire from our customers and patients to actually uh, physically touch someone and, and be in the store. I think it's a testament to our scale in general as a company. There's a Walmart within 10 miles of 90% of the population and, you know, 160 million people that are going through the stores every week. So um, I think what we try to be mindful of is we're not um, going to be everything to everyone. Um, we have, you know, kind of unique capabilities that um, people that are coming into the store might benefit from, whether it's, you know, low price generic uh 
medications to healthy foods to um, being able to get uh, a test at the pharmacy counter. So um, we feel pretty confident that there is a there's definitely a role here. And how do you assess like some of those opportunities in the sector and also deal with challenges. Like you said, you're obviously uniquely positioned that way because you have the retail experience. You have customers that are going to go there regardless of what their healthcare status is. But then you tie in, obviously, having the prescription drug delivery. You talk, you talk about having the food as medicine approach that we've seen a number of organizations go through. In addition to the retail footprint, you know, that obviously has to give you a leg up when you're looking at competitors like, you know, the Amazon, CVS, Walgreens of the world. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, maybe a good example would be, um, you know, we started our research institute. Um, now it's been over two years. Uh, and, you know, one might say, you know, why is Walmart in research? You know, we're not an academic center, but it really kind of touches on all the things that we just talked about. So with research, one of the, the at least the equity impacts on research is that research typically is not including uh, patients from all walks of life. They tend to be people that can get to an academic center that have the time or uh, the means to be able to do that and take time out of their day um, versus, you know, we have, you know, close to 30 million people within our pharmacy. We have seven or eight million people that have opted into getting messages on research. So I'm able to um, talk to our patients as we always do when we're talking about flu vaccines or whatever it is and say, you know, we understand that this might be an important medication or a disease state for your family. Would you want to be included? And and that's one way of actually using our footprint to try to drive uh, things that we're good at. And I and I think the, the thing that's really key here is that we're not trying to do everything. We're trying to do things that we can lean in on. So on research, we can find patients for studies. We can highlight the studies that are important to our population. Um, it's a, you know, it's, it's a need in the market. And it also has a real important clinical and equity need as well. It's interesting to hear you talk about kind of doing things that maybe you weren't expected to. I remember I had a conversation with Walgreens chief clinical trials officer back at Health in October, and she had said, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily expect Walgreens to be on that front when they think about prescription drugs. They think about just the pickup and delivery of that care, but they're expanding their footprint into there. When you think about your ultimate vision of what Walmart can be in the healthcare sector, what does that look like to you? Is it kind of being this, you know, comprehensive we can go here for a number of different services, or is it something specialty-wise? What does it look like? Yeah, you're, you're asking really easy questions, <laughs> but I, I, I would say that's what everybody's trying to figure out, but I, I'll give you the best uh, guess that, that I have. And I've been in healthcare now for, for a bit, you know, in PBM space, pharma, med device, uh, trained as a nephrologist, so seen everything and practice as well. Uh, you know, the, the thing that I've sort of gleaned from this is that there's not one solution. Um, um, and, and there can't be because there's so many forces, whether you have to be a network, whether there is already pre-existing frameworks in place, where I think we're um, being really smart, um, you know, talking about research is where we're not trying to be a clinical research organization and do things in 10. But what we can do is we can identify patients. Or if somebody is coming into the clinic, they may not be seeing us for complicated issues, but it might be those 50 things, low acuity things that um, we can really lean in on. So whether it's low price meds, whether it's, you know, you need a vaccine, whether you need to be tested for COVID or strep, those are the places that, you know, irrespective of where you're going to, 
there's uh, something that we can actually do. And so that's sort of how we've tried to frame things is, number one, we want to drive access. We want to be in the communities. We want to be relevant. We want to be caring. But at the same time, we also want to be who we are and, and what we do well. And that might just not be everything. It might be things that you know we're well positioned to succeed in. And what do you think about that in terms of maybe the most misunderstood aspect of your mission as an organization going into healthcare space? Because I know I've seen it in covering this year after year with whether, you know, Amazon says that they want to do something further in the healthcare space or Google or Apple, these kind of non-traditional players. There is always that pushback from the incumbents in the real traditional, whether they're an insurance company or a hospital system or pharma or whatever. There's always that, oh, this is something new. It could be so disruptive. You know, what do you think that has looked like from Walmart's perspective and how have you tried to overcome that in terms of your operations? Yeah, I, I think we're, um, you know, we, we don't tend to pay too much attention to sort of the, I guess, the news that, you know, of, of trying to reinvent or transform um, because there's a pretty singular focus on trying to do what's right for the customer and the patient today. And so, you know, for, um, being clinical doesn't necessarily need to be complicated. So, you know, we have a low-priced insulin product, cash-based product that was in the market way before a lot of the conversations on insulin price. And um, to people, um, you know, a $4 generic for over 250 medications, very meaningful. The ability to participate in research, very meaningful. The, the ability to have our community health workers take people on a trip to, to identify um, the right types of foods to eat. So I would say for us, um, you know, we're really trying to be smart about our scale and just what we do well and where we can complement what's out there already rather than trying to reinvent uh, something that I think everybody has tried to do. And, and then the people that really suffer from that are the folks that are waiting for that to happen. And we want to do something today. So I am kind of curious, too, how you see the future of prescription drug del- delivery looking. I know that you guys have experimented with drone deliveries. I know that's not necessarily just for prescription drugs. That's for other products as well. But we've seen the likes of Amazon getting into that area in terms of operations. Is that something that you see the future where it's not even just like, hey, we're going to have it brick and mortar, or we're going to deliver it through the mail, but we could actually be using, say, drones in the future? What does that look like to you? Yeah, I think, you know, all of those things are, I view as more capabilities that, you know, for individuals who are in rural areas, that might be really important for individuals who uh, are doing perfectly fine with their manner of how they're getting their medications. That's fine. I'm probably more interested in sort of what somebody's adherence looks like on the medication rather Mm -hmm. than sort of how they get their medication. So, you know, we know that um, individuals that uh, in particular, we've been talking a lot about this in complex medications that we have an opportunity to educate at the pharmacy counter. So whether it's an HIV prep medication, whether it's uh, somebody who's fearful of an injection uh, training, that ultimately is is going to be more important than ultimately, um, you know, the manner in which you get the medications. But I, I clearly think that, you know, those types of mechanisms, drones, whatever it ends up being, if it's getting to a patient who can't get that that drug, that's um, you know, that's that's pretty important to have as a as a piece in your armamentarium. You talk about educating consumers, and I really wanted to pick your brain about this because, like, I talk to a lot of incumbent healthcare leaders, and they're always talking about you know trying to engage their consumers, their patients, and they point back to like COVID being this real pivot spot where it's like, oh yeah, like we started engaging them more. They had more of an impact in terms of how we were operating and going about our strategy. You're kind of coming from the reverse, where it's obviously. You know, Walmart is so well known as a consumer giant 
that they're able to take what they know about the consumer and translate that into their healthcare goals. Can you kind of talk to that for our audience in terms of maybe like strategy or advice you would give them in terms of engaging consumers? Because they're kind of playing catch up, if you will, where you guys are almost the industry standard in that way. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it falls back to the question you asked me about first about, you know, whether brick and mortar is helpful or not. And I think this is where it can be helpful because, you know, we have uh, close to 5,000 pharmacies, 4,000 of those are in underserved areas. Um, and so the touch point with a pharmacist is really, really critical. And so the education that occurs at the counter is important. The other thing that we also take um, you know, pretty seriously is that every moment in which we encounter someone um, is an opportunity to either change their understanding of their medication, to build trust, um, you know, health literacy. Um, so for example, on research, um, another great thing about doing research is that even if I message someone or communicate to someone about a particular study, and let's say they didn't want to get involved, we have an ability at that time as their provider to talk to them about the disease state, about maybe a care gap that hasn't been filled. And so it's sort of core to just what the broader Walmart enterprise does on a day-to-day basis, and it's just being deployed in the same way on the on the health side. I want to go back to something that you brought up earlier, which is obviously you have so much experience being a healthcare executive at different parts of the sector, obviously so well known from your time at Express Scripts. Can you talk about, because I used to, in a past life, I used to uh, write and report about hospitals and health systems. And there was always this kind of underlying resentment with other sides of the industry. Like there was the rivalry with insurance companies. There was a rivalry with PBMs. Now I'm covering the pharma and biotech side. And there is still that kind of, I would, I wouldn't say distrust, but just kind of like, well, they're on the other side and they are all this sort of stuff. But I always hear leaders talking about, we need to break down silos. We need to come together. We need to advance the mission for the patient. You've worked across these different industries. I mean, these different sides of the industry. From your perspective, what really needs to happen to make that sort of action occur? Because it, it goes to that sort of like talk is cheap, but we need to actually do something here. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's, there's definitely a tension amongst, um, you know, wherever you are. And, and a lot of that is related to just sort of the incentives of how um, those businesses operate and where they're playing. I think, you know, at least I've been lucky to be in places where, there's always been positive intent about trying to do what's right for the patient. I think it's just trying to make things fit. That's that's challenging. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I have a great answer for this, but at least you know on the retail side, one of the reasons I came over was because I wanted to do something more impactful than traditional, and that really is driven by the consumer. So until the consumer begins to ask, it's very difficult for things to move. I think we're starting to see this with drug pricing. Um, you know, which is changing. I think we're also beginning to see a lot more uh, honesty about sort of what medications actually do. What's the true impact? If you take a medication, is it really meaningful? Is it worth the price? Um, those are important discussions to have. And so um, I think, you know, at least the Walmarts of the world and other retail and non-traditional players, you know, you have an opportunity to really be a voice of the customer. And that to me is what's always changed things. Um, more so than, you know, an, an institution or a sector. Do you foresee an opportunity for other brands being able to make that change? Because obviously, again, you guys kind of come in there with, I wouldn't say a fresh slate, but a familiarity with consumers where they say, well, if I already have a good experience going to Walmart for my groceries or for other retail items, I can probably trust them with healthcare. Do you think there's an opportunity for healthcare first brands to kind of reshape that, if you will, and say like, hey, we want to be more understood as that sort of brand rather than just the siloed idea? Yeah, I, I think there is. I, I think, you know, 
I mean, you're being very kind in how you're talking about us, but, you know, I, I think there's a lot that we still have to do. Um, you know, I would say that not everybody thinks about Walmart as a as a, uh, a healthcare destination. And, you know, one of the things that um, we have done in recent um, years, for example, you know, there's a huge emphasis on safety and quality um, at Walmart. I don't, you know, I don't think Walmart is thought about as like an academic center and nor should it be. But there's no reason why we can't aspire to that same level. So, for example, our chief quality officer was the outgoing chief quality officer at Mass General. And while there are multiple great institutions out there, it's it's a real statement to say that, you know, you might be in a rural area someplace, but you're really being exposed to sort of care pathways and processes that, you know, an academic center might approach. So I would say that, you know, everybody has the ability to to be that, you know, differing healthcare brand, but it really comes down to those core fundamentals that, um, you know, I think are really important when, when you're trying to build something like that and be relevant. Absolutely. And I've really appreciated you being on the show, giving us your time and your insights and how you see not only Walmart, but its role within the larger industry. We're sitting here in mid January 2024. And I'm kind of curious, as you look at the year ahead, reading the tea leaves, what do you see in terms of trends that you're keeping an eye on or you think could really impact the sector? Obviously, we're kind of past this emergency phase of the COVID pandemic, but there are all these other things that are a priority for the industry. You talked about the emphasis on drug pricing, both on the federal level, but also from the consumer level up. You know, What else is on your radar as you look ahead to the year? Yeah, I think, you know, besides that, uh, you know, genetic therapies, you know, novel therapies that are curative and, you know, might have to think about different ways uh, to make sure that people have access to that. Um, I think the consumer is going to be at the forefront. Um, I would say the one thing that has happened during pandemic, and I live this, uh, you know, just even talking to patients and employer groups and health plans is that, you know, people are really educated on uh, on on disease and you know they have the ability to look things up so being relevant and being trusted I think is important uh, the dialogue with the consumer I think is going to be pretty forefront beyond you know all the fun stuff AI quantum computing all that stuff but I, I think this year in particular is you're beginning to start to see a lot of those voices and then some of the clinical decisions you have to make you have to really respect you know what people are saying and you know how you mitigate you know differing views. I appreciate you getting the AI reference in there. I don't think I've had one conversation in the past six months that didn't somehow involve AI one way or another. So Dr. Wig, again, really appreciate you making the time here. Certainly wish you and the company best of luck in terms of your healthcare mission. And maybe someday down the line, we can reconnect and see how it's all going. Absolutely. Appreciate you having us. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. The Food and Drug Administration is planning to undergo the largest reorganization in its history, officials announced last week. At an alliance for a stronger FDA webinar on Friday, agency officials, including Principal Deputy Commissioner Janet Woodcock, unveiled the new plan, which involves reforming not only the FDA's Human Foods Program, but also its Office of Regulatory Affairs, or ORA, as a whole. The ORA, which is responsible for the agency's field activities and inspections for its import food, bioresearch, and medical device programs, 
will be transformed into a new entity called the Office of Inspections and Investigations, or OII. The overall goal of the restructuring is to make inspections more efficient and remove silos between regulators and center program staff when the agency is evaluating violations at facilities. The revamp was triggered partially by the nationwide infant formula crisis, which started nearly two years ago, but still looms large over the FDA. A whistleblower had notified the agency back in 2021 about safety concerns at Abbott Nutrition's infant formula facility in Michigan, but the FDA failed to escalate the complaint to leadership. A 2022 report out of the Reagan Udall Foundation highlighted those concerns and urged the FDA to address them, prompting the new reorganization, Woodcock said. We looked at some of the problems and issues that were raised in the Reagan Udall report and other reports, for example, about um, interaction um, between ORA and the programs and so forth. This wasn't limited to the foods program. We're trying to move toward more enterprise system holistic look at how the FDA functions and we think this will help ORA function better because they'll have more uniformity in how they're dealing with the various programs that they work with. Woodcock added that the overhaul will involve more transparency around the FDA's budget. It's expected to be implemented this year, though the FDA still needs to get approval from the HHS. Meanwhile, back in Congress, Senator Bernie Sanders is currently at a standoff with Big Pharma. Last week, Sanders threatened to subpoena the CEOs of Johnson & Johnson and Merck into testifying about high drug prices. Sanders heads the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions, or HELP Committee, which hasn't issued a subpoena in over 40 years. Sanders had previously invited the two CEOs, as well as Bristol Myers Squibb CEO Chris Borner, to testify at a HELP hearing about high drug costs later this month. But only Borner agreed to join, with J&J and Merck offering other executives to attend rather than their CEOs. Sanders was not happy with that offer, calling it, quote, absolutely unacceptable that the CEOs refused to agree to the hearing. These CEOs may make tens of millions of dollars in compensation, Sanders said, but that does not give them a right to evade congressional oversight. J&J, Merck, and Bristol-Myers Squibb are among the list of pharma companies that have sued the federal government over the Inflation Reduction Act's Medicare negotiation provision, arguing that the new law infringes on constitutional rights. Sanders will now instead hold a HELP committee vote on January 31st on whether to issue the subpoenas against J&J and Merck over high drug costs. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMNM. Trending. So before we dive into our top healthcare trends, I want to call attention to New England Patriots beat writer Doug Kayed, whose two-year-old daughter passed away Sunday morning following a months-long battle with acute myeloid leukemia. His family set up a GoFundMe page dedicated to her care, and we will include a link to that in the transcript of this podcast for any listeners who are interested in donating. On Tuesday morning, nominations for the 96th Academy Awards were announced, including one for a documentary with a moving healthcare narrative. As we mentioned a few episodes ago, The Eternal Memory tells the story of a Chilean couple, journalist Augusto Gongora and actress Paulina Uritia, whose 23-year marriage is upended when Gongora is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Eight years removed from his diagnosis, Gangora no longer recognizes his wife, but their love and commitment to one another remain. 
The movie was one of five nominated for Best Documentary Feature Film. Maite Alberde, who was nominated for an Oscar in 2021, directed the film. It had its world premiere at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival, where it won the Grand Jury Prize. And this is quoting from the citation read at Sundance, quote, The film opened our hearts by bringing us closer to the meaning of life and death and the element that threads the sense into all of it, love. Through a simple yet complex portrayal of a confinement, it brings us to the lives of these fascinating characters who make us wiser and more loving the longer we stay with them. The film is distributed by MTV Documentary Films, and it's available for streaming on Paramount+. The 96th Academy Awards will be held on March 10th on ABC, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. Obviously, there were a number of different movies that were in contention that healthcare was in some way a focus of the film. It's really interesting to see this one, especially a day after there's a campaign that's launching on Fortnite that has to do with raising Alzheimer's awareness. There seems to be this renewed push as it relates to, you know, covering stories with Alzheimer's. I haven't had a chance to see the movie yet. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to have to steal somebody's Paramount Plus uh, subscription to get it. But it's it's really interesting that when it looks at, I think we were looking at about a half dozen stories, this is the one that ultimately is going to have a chance to win an Oscar. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had seen it because I haven't seen it yet, but I think I, I'd like to look into watching it because it sounds very impactful. And um, to your point about, you know, there's being this increased push on Alzheimer's again, obviously the diabetes space has sort of taken um, up a lot of pharma's attention the last couple of years before that it was COVID. But I think Alzheimer's is going to continue to be a huge um, topic, especially as, you know, the gray tsunami hits and or the silver silver tsunami hits and um, the aging population grows um, because we know that Alzheimer's Alzheimer's rates are going to keep growing um, along with that population. So Definitely a timely topic. And it's one of those things, too, where it's kind of doing the caregiver aspect. You know, the fact that she doesn't have Alzheimer's and she's been caring for him for almost a decade. You know, we had Richard Liu on the show over the summer and we've covered different campaigns. You know, it's there's always so much focus on the patient, but being able to also highlight the role the caregiver has and the stresses that they go through, too, is, is something that's. Uh, very prominent, at least from what I've seen of this movie so far. So looking forward to watching it and obviously looking forward to, you know, over a month from now, seeing if they they bring home the gold statue. For our second story, we're going to former Biggest Loser trainer Jillian Michaels, who's made headlines in recent days for her criticisms of GLP-1 drugs. Michaels spoke to Fox News about her concerns about the well-known side effects of Ozempic and other GLP-1 drugs that have taken off in popularity over the last 18 months. These side effects range from what she deems the, quote, extremely nefarious to just absolutely shitty. She warned the outlet about the influence of celebrities who have taken GLP-1 drugs, knowing that they are not nutritionists or fitness experts and encourage consumers to do their own research on these medications. It's important to note that while Michaels is a certified nutritionist, she is not a doctor. Still, she said there are positives that have come out of the renewed focus about talking about weight loss and obesity, even while taking a swipe at Big Pharma in the process. Two good things that have come out of this, in my opinion, are it has proven what I've been saying for three decades, calories in, calories out is weight loss. Health is a different conversation, but it facilitates weight loss. Proof, inputting. Second thing, we know that women and men of all ages can lose weight because most of these people on Ozempic are 40 plus, right? And they're shrinking. So looks like you can still lose weight if you're eating less food. And the third thing, I guess the third thing is now we're allowed to say that obesity is deadly again because the pharmaceutical companies have shaped that narrative one more time. 
So those are the only good things about it. That clip is courtesy of Fox News. During the interview, Michael said that if these drugs were, quote, the easy way out, she would recommend them and align her app with others that have gotten into the prescribing game, specifically Weight Watchers. In rising to prominence on The Biggest Loser, Michaels has been the subject of controversy and criticism throughout her public career, including her time as a trainer on more than 10 seasons of the show. Even as recently as a 2021 interview on the Today Show, Michaels regretted the gamification of weight loss on the show, but stood by her tough love approach to contestants, as well as the 1,200 calorie per day diet that she promoted on The Biggest Loser. Additionally, a systematic review of The Biggest Loser published in the American Psychological Association's Stigma and Health Journal in 2022 indicated that, quote, although researchers have identified the potential benefits of The Biggest Loser, the potential harm seemed to outweigh any benefits. Weight-based edutainment is fraught with assumptions, stereotypes, and inaccuracies about the weight that serve to reinforce stigmatizing discourses in society. And we were talking a little bit before we hopped on here, Lesha and I were, about the fact that you know, I'm I'm willing to sit here and say that Michael's made some very fair points. There are a lot of questions about how long and who should be on these drugs. And, you know, we're still trying to research the overall impact. There are also some criticisms that I find a little bit ironic coming from somebody like Jillian Michaels, coming from somebody that as a kid watched plenty of seasons of The Biggest Loser in terms of, you know, how we talk and deal with weight. I, I wanted to bring you in, Lesha, just because it is kind of a nuanced thing where it's like, yeah, you can make these criticisms of, of who and what has access to these drugs and how they affect the body. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of people are trying to lose weight or battle obesity in a way that gives them a chance. Right. And I mean, it's fair that she's bringing up some points about this question of, you know, this there being some expected fallout, you know, once people get off the drugs. Um, that's obviously been a conversation that's been happening already. People questioning, will people regain the weight when they get off them? Is this something they have to stay on for the rest of their lives or can they kind of just take it temporarily? Those are big questions that, you know, we probably won't know the answers to fully for a while. Um, but I do believe that, you know, when doctors are prescribing these drugs that they're not necessarily saying this is the one pill, your this is your one magic pill to weight loss. They're also saying you have to also do these other lifestyle changes that's going to maintain the weight loss after you do ideally get off of them. So I guess I, I somewhat understand her criticism, but also I don't think these drugs are meant to be a one solution anyway. People are supposed to be making lifestyle changes alongside taking these drugs. So, And I think that's an important thing for our audience to really recognize is that this is how it is kind of being, I don't want to say portrayed, but like this is how when it's going, coming down to the layman, it's being understood. Like, oh, if I just take this, the weight's going to fall off. I'm going to be good. And it's like, no, there has to be that other aspect that you talk about there where you're exercising more, you're cutting out bad things in your diet. And she talks about that too, but it's also not as simple to look at it the other way and say, well, if you just work out more and you eat differently, I mean, I don't know about you. I have plenty of people in my life that like they've been trying that for years to no avail and you mm -hmm. get frustrated and you get beaten down or even some people just call it quits mm -hmm. and go back to their bad habits. Right. And the drugs sort of offer uh, additional support, I guess, because um, everyone is different. Everyone has a different metabolism. Everyone is di dealing with different issues. Um, and so one weight loss plan, like the 1200 calorie thing that she's pushing, isn't going to work for everyone. Um, that might be way too few calories for certain people, depending on your age, weight, height, things like that. So um, there really is a no one size fits all approach to weight loss, as we're discovering. 
And it needs to be really a combination of things that is a long-term lifestyle change of a lot of little things. Absolutely. And it's not the biggest loser. I can tell you that from, you know, for years of watching that show and seeing people losing. And then regain the weight, yeah, right? I mean, just so aggressively. I mean, it, I haven't watched the show, but I assume that people who are on such a short time period of like being on a crash diet and trying to lose as many pounds as fast as they can in the shortest amount of time possible are going to regain the weight because it's not a long-term solution, right? Abs- absolutely. And she even acknowledged it in the Today Show interview because I went back and I, I watched some of it before we hopped on here and talking about the like, a lot of these things are psychological. A lot of these things go a lot deeper and yeah. require some sort of aspect of therapy and, right. and treating emotional pain. But, you know, forcing a 400 pound person to do burpees in the hopes that they're going to lose 11 pounds. They get to stay on the show the next week. Mm -hmm. And in that time, they don't break a leg or have a heart attack or something like you just go down and you're like, wow, that was such a toxic show that was on the air for a decade. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that seems to be beside the point, but yeah, I mean, valid criticisms, I think some unwarranted ones, who am I to judge in that situation? But it certainly got a lot of people talking. I can say that much. We've had kind of a downbeat trend segment, I will acknowledge that, starting off with leukemia, talking about Alzheimer's, talking about obesity, but you're going to bring it all together, Lesha. What is Reese Witherspoon up to? So Reese Witherspoon has sparked a health and hygiene debate online because she decided to eat snow, um, which is part of a much larger trend on TikTok called snow cream. Um, in many parts of the U.S., we experienced our first snowfall of 2024 in the last couple of weeks. And with that comes a new TikTok trend, snow cream, which is essentially making ice cream out of snow. All over TikTok, people are scooping up snow from their backyards in bowls or mugs, bringing it inside and mixing it with vanilla, sweetened condensed milk, sprinkles and anything else they think looks good. It's that time of year. I am going to make ice cream. No, and this is perfect. Look at it. Oh, it hasn't even been touched. But the trend really took off when actress Reese Witherspoon posted a snow cream video four days ago that went viral with more than 5.2 million views, where she makes a coffee treat out of snow scooped off her car. Okay, so we got a ton of snow over the past few days. We decided to make a recipe. So first we scooped the snow into cups and we put it on top. And then we decided to add some cold brew just to have a yummy coffee flavor. Oh, that is so good. Okay, I know what to call it. A salted, snowy cappuccino. But Witherspoon's video prompted a good amount of questions and backlash, with many people asking whether it's safe to eat snow. So there's so many people on here saying that snow is dirty. So we went and took snow from the backyard and we microwaved it and it's clear. Is this bad? Am I not supposed to eat snow? Now we're going to dig more into the health concerns of this trend later this week in an article I'm writing. But the main takeaway that I've been able to research so far is that eating snow can be kind of dangerous. So you want to make sure that you're reading you're eating the right kind of snow if you're going to partake in this trend. Um, From what I've read, experts say that snow closest to the ground is the most likely to contain droppings from wild animals, rock salts filled with chemicals and pollutants, scrapes from the air as it falls down. According to the Washington Post, researchers have found newly fallen snow can contain pesticides, soot, and chemicals like mercury. 
So to be extra safe, experts suggest scooping up the freshest layer of snow after several hours of falling, as apparently this is the most likely to be the cleanest. Um, so as millions of people are watching these videos on TikTok um, and making snow cream, you know, use some common sense and try to pick snow that looks clean, is in a clean area, is the upper layer of snow rather than closest to the ground. You know, these are sort of common sense ideas, but we want to make sure we're driving that home. <laughs> I I don't even know where to begin. I guess, I mean, when you said animal droppings and the first thing I think of is just Reese Witherspoon putting God knows what in her mug and then putting condensed milk and whipped cream on top of it. But the, I mean, Academy Award winning actress, you know, love what she's done with the book club, love the promotion of all that sort of stuff. Like, you know, why? Like, why? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we all grew up in areas around snow, all three of us. Mm-hmm. We've all been guilty of eating snow at one yeah, time a or kid, another. I definitely ate some snow when I was outside playing in the snow because it looks good when you're a kid. You know? Yeah. But like if any of us were coming in here, we're like, oh, what'd you do over the weekend? It's like, oh, I ate snow. <laughs> I got off the ground. I mean, I think also us being New Yorkers makes us a lot more, uh, you know, we're a little more scared of snow (laughs) than like maybe people in other parts of the U.S. Because when it does snow here, it takes about five minutes before that snow turns black. So just an awful, (laughs) awful shade (laughs) that snow should ever be. Fitz, I want to bring you in here because when was the last, I I guess I just want to ask, when was the last time that you ate snow? But also if somebody approached you and said that they were doing this, let alone that they're an Oscar winning actress, director, producer, all that sort of stuff. Like what is your response in that situation? Yeah. It's funny. I was, I I didn't see her posting that, but I saw some random guy. I don't even know who, if, if he was a celebrity, but he was doing the same exact thing. He was outside during the snowstorms last week, got a bowl of snow, added condensed milk, which by the way, I've never had knowingly condensed milk before. Have you guys tasted? Yeah, it's, con- it's in cocktails. It's in oh, Vietnamese it, iced coffee. Or yeah. Is it some, yeah. It's in, it's in hooch too. It's an O'Brien family recipe. <gasps> hooch. <laughs> I've never had it, but he put sugar in it and vanilla too. I mean, as for uh, that, I, I probably try it just to try it. But no, Fitz. Did I, you I, not listen to everything Lesha just I know said? I did, but I eat, like my kids eat snow. Last yeah. week I had to tell them, listen, and they're, they're ridiculous. They have no self-control. Like they were picking up ice that was obviously attached to maybe the back bumper of a car and just Oof, right in the mouth. No. My like, guys, guys, no, the exhaust no. fumes. <laughs> Don't eat snow that is brown or yellow. That's the rules. But I'm somebody that also drank water directly out of the hose when I was a kid for many, many summers, and I'm. Well, that, that explains a number of things about you. Yeah, I think. probably does. <laughs> well, that's actually what Reese Witherspoon said in one of her reaction videos to all the backlash. She was like. We didn't drink filtered water when I was growing up. I drank water straight from the hose. You know, this was n- not really a concern <laughs> when she grew up. Fair. Um, so She's that was close kinda- to my age, too. So that's probably why. <laughs> <laughs> this explains all too much. And it doesn't it doesn't, again, damper my enthusiasm. I love Reese Witherspoon. I'm very excited that they're going to have Big Little Lies season three, apparently, is in the in the works. But no, don't do it. Don't, don't eat snow off the ground. Don't go with a mug. There's yeah, there's just something so, so wrong about that. Just whatever you see, just the little snowflakes that are falling from the sky. Just do that. Don't don't bother yourself with the rest of it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how else to wrap the show other than telling you don't eat snow off the ground. I appreciate everyone for joining us and, and, and listening to this episode and leading the insights from 
Dr. Wig of Walmart and Lesh's health policy updates along with our trend segment. Please be sure to tune into next week's episode. We'll be joined by Jeff Simmons, the CEO of Alanco Animal Health. And we'll be making homemade snow cones. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. 